0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining me again. I've got uh, Will Dixon joining me today and we're going to talk about cyber resilience. So thank you Will for for your time today from uh, sunny Switzerland. I'm assuming it's sunny, it looks sunny in the the video. Uh, And I wanted to start off just by maybe asking you a bit about yourself. Tell us about yourself, your background.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Mike, for inviting me. And um, I'm looking forward to a, an interesting conversation. So um, the first part of my career was working in uh, UK government and I was um, involved in um, cyber investigations and conducting cyber operations, largely um, concentrating on detecting and investigating and, and ultimately prosecuting um, high tech crime teams that would pose the most significant threats to the UK. And uh, they came from a um, largely um uh, largely jurisdictions that were overseas and then from that i was um i was working at barclays bank where i was part of the chief security office and part of kind of like a large large international bank building their security program and then from that i've come to the world economic forum and um i'm in charge of the world economic forum cyber security program so uh, at the world economic forum it's obviously a large international organization probably best well known for convening the davos meeting each year in um um Um, each year in Switzerland and um, I work with all our members and partners from the public and private sector on discussing the most significant topics that impact global businesses and um, uh, major public policy issues and for about two three years the World Economic Forum has been um, identifying that cybersecurity is one of those top tier risks that their leaders um, and members want to talk about so that's the program I run here.
0: Superb again I'm, I'm well overqualified by you out qualified not overqualified i'm out qualified uh by by you in the cyber space but hopefully i've got a little bit on the resilience space to to balance it off but what does resilience mean to you will so i think the the
1: experience at um the experience at barclays and the experience of WEF has given me like quite a different perspective on what cyber resilience um um means depending on the stakeholders you're you're dealing with i think when i was in when I was in first line and working like in a SOC within, within Barclays Bank I think it was about maintaining the integrity of the technology and services which the the kind of like the bank and the institution depended on to to be able to kind of like deliver um, um deliver you know its its functions. I think when I've come to the WEF and you're kind of like you're moving up where you're kind of like you're, you're very much dealing with kind of like senior leadership Yes, they understand that kind of cyber resilience is about maintaining the kind of technology they're dependent on, but actually, increasingly, it's about maintaining the integrity of their business, its reputation, ensuring trust within its services with its customers, um, which is not just a technology issue, it's ensuring that they have all the right processes and controls to be able to deal with incidents and deal with um, operational issues, but also deal with communication issues and deal with regulators and, and the whole kind of holistic nature of kind of maintaining trust in their business um, outside of the technology space as well.
0: And I think that's an interesting point to, to kind of get stuck into, right? Because a lot of people will think that cyber equals technology, right? And so cyber, and and, and to be fair, you know, cyber generally does imply that there is some sort of attack on technology or technology is involved in the chain now it's difficult for technology not to be involved in any event in this day and age but people often forget that the the first port of call really with any cyber attack is probably going to be a human and probably going to be uh you know some sort of um a phishing some email some some website something that basically is is engineering that human to open the door
1: to yes, absolutely.
0: organization. Uh, so when you think about how we would be more resilient against cyber events, what would you where would you start?
1: Yeah, so um, what's incredible about cybersecurity in many ways is that it's often seen as this incredibly technical domain. And and yes, it is a technical domain, but but you're right. Still, ninety percent of most successful attacks are basically phishing emails and and people clicking on links, gaining a foothold in networks and being able to um, conduct an attack. So, um, ensuring kind of like a culture of cyber resilience, I think within an organisation is probably the most in kind of like important priority. And the reason why I talk about like a culture of cyber resilience is it means that kind of like cybersecurity is not only an issue for the cybersecurity and security team, but it's ensuring that you kind of like your organization is like building a end-to-end culture of kind of like building cybersecurity um resilience because like you said, you know, um what's the most effective controls as an organization that you can put in, you can have like incredibly fancy like you know, detection capability to detect attacks, but if you've got a hundred thousand employees and they're kind of like consistently clicking on links that are suspicious because they've had no training, you know, it's a, it's kind of like, what's the most effective way of like building, um, building an effective security culture there as well. So yeah, it's, um, and I, you know, that, that, that has definitely been, um, something that I learned at Barclays actually, you know, which was obviously I was in kind of like one of the more forward-leaning kind of like technical parts of of the security function, but you realize that there was just this entire organizational change that actually needed to go, uh, needed to be embedded to to build like real cyber resilience.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, you're getting that culture into every human, every part of the bank is really difficult. Yeah. um, Just would never think that they were part of the solution of helping to secure the bank against cyber threats. Why? Why would anyone attack me? I'm just, uh, I'm just someone in in HR, you know. It, and that's that's the sort of, I guess, the initial response that we've had to correct, and uh, and and build that that culture of resilience and that culture of, of cyber security into the organization.
1: Yeah, and actually, um, it's. Um... It's kind of a it's kind of like a dual-edged sword because like there's an expectation I think from a lot of employees that they're increasingly increasingly open they want kind of like they want access to internal services very very quickly they kind of like they don't like kind of like friction within their kind of employee experience yeah. at or um, but you know on the other hand you know most reconnaissance from cyber attacks are going to come from kind of like social media gathering kind of like gathering information on LinkedIn etc. But it's very difficult to say to like your employees, actually, we're as an organization, we need to make sure that X, Y, and Z, and we're maintaining the integrity of what you do. Um, outside of just like our enterprise is, um, is definitely a cultural shift as well.
0: I mean, I know that this video is being hopefully watched by lots of people on LinkedIn, yes, but uh, and LinkedIn for as an example of a platform is, is exceptional for uh, getting access to really interesting information like this video uh but also uh really good and very useful for stalking people to find out what they're up to where they work where they've been etc if you get someone come through with a a, responding to a job ad your first pull of call is generally going to be google and linkedin to find out a bit more about them and and i know that we we had incidents in the past where LinkedIn has been ha- used to harvest information around organization and the likely responsibilities and access that individuals might have within organizations quite successfully yeah. in organizations as well and so it's that double-edged sword that it's really useful as a professional to hire people to 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 sort of you know seek out your your next greatest whatever it may be but it's also really helpful for a criminal to be able to work out um, how they're going to compromise an organization and achieve their their goal um, and their objective as well. What do you think, so we talked about training and yeah. we talked about some of the threats, but what are the sort of top five threats? And it's okay to kind of go over, I think we've covered yeah. some of the, maybe the top five threats to to an organization. There's just sort of generic threats that people need to be aware of.
1: Yeah. So um the really interesting thing is is what is kind of like having the the diversity of kind of like background and experience that i had coming from government which is i still think we have to remember that this is ultimately a crime type and actually a large amount of the attack vectors that come so you can say look, there's three or four kind of like major threats an organization has to be dealt with. But still fundamentally, you're still dealing in cybercrime with kind of like a quite hardened core of a cybercrime ecosystem, which is a criminal enterprise. Um, But the attack vectors that kind of like a large organization would certainly be worried about now, uh, ransomware. And uh, ransomware has kind of been a growing threat and trend for the last, uh, you know, three, four years, given the kind of... um, operating models crime groups have but actually since covid has come in you've seen very very aggressive ransomware campaigns increasingly destructive Um, you see um, extortion associated with ransomware campaigns as well second big thing which has been a major trend in in kind of like in in the news as always um linked to some nation state activity has been the solar winds attack that was an example of supply chain attacks. Um, it's actually something that you've seen over a number of years where uh, advanced actors are looking to compromise at scale and actually kind of compromising the organization's supply chains is a very, very good way um, of doing that.
0: And we saw that with, uh, with WannaCry and uh, another um, ransomware around the same sort of time, right? That was really a supply chain attack that spat oh. out into collateral damage in many, many other firms.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And um, that's something really difficult for a big organization to deal with, which is like um, the first problem most organizations are dealing with is like just having visibility of their supply chain. You know, obviously we came from like major, major international organizations. The sheer scale of kind of like what constitutes an organization's supply chain is is, is a significant um is a significant um, task to even uh, for, for most organizations to deal with. And it's, and it's a costly one at that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And then your question, which is you well, know, becomes interesting as well, because like we had, the, there was a Google outage a couple of weeks ago and it lasted for you know an hour or so, but the fourth party impact of that was that a lot of people are using Google for their authentication engines for their third party uh, solutions that are providing to people. And so you couldn't get into Slack. You couldn't get into a whole bunch of stuff because, Google had a had a had an issue, ironically, probably caused by patching um, for for a different issue. But it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of that that those layers of separation now. Yes. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth party. And, and at some point you might find it post-cloud that every every road leads to Azure or AWS or Google or Oracle or whatever it may be as a hosting provider and a cloud service provider or it could be everyone leads to Accenture or to IBM or whoever it is. And, and, it, and it's, it's kind of tracing that and understanding the relationships and understanding all those different layers. It's very complex. Yeah, and uh, I think the Google
1: example was, um, the Google example was um, a really interesting example because I suppose, what do you do about, what, what real kind of like leverage do you have as an organization on, on having resilience when you're dependent on such a large technology provider, like a, like downstream, et cetera. Because um, we talk about this, one of the programs that we run at the WEF, which is kind of like, what, what does the future of CNI look like, you know? So, you know, if you're critical national infrastructure and you say like an electricity grid, etc., there's like clear service agreements about like what you have access to and, you know, kind of what happens if kind of like, you know, that availability goes down. But if you're critical, dependent on a large tech one. provider,
0: It's it's all generally contained within one box as well in in a sort of an electricity company. So it's quite easy for you to understand it. But yeah, when you get into the tech side of it, it becomes quite challenging. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that the you you end up like, like, again, so if you look at the analogy between energy and and technology hosting, technology hosting is really a commoditized Homogeneous environment, right? This is it. You, you can have A, B, or C, whereas the energy solution is built for the problem and the requirements using commoditized components. But nevertheless, it's it's built in a very specific way. Yes. And so that 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 leverage to to your point back onto some of these hosting service providers, the benefits of moving to a commoditized, homogeneous hosting environment. Are, are that it's the ease of adoption it's very clear you know how to get there etc um but it also means that the leverage and the pressure you can put on people to make changes just for you uh goes away and then maybe erodes the benefit and the value that you have in scale at that and so i think there's a lot probably coming with some of these service providers they might have an option d for uh, high 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 brand high, high availability financial services an option e for uh, government agencies, or an option F for um, the other government agencies. Yes, so and actually,
1: if you're a regulator, like actually, if you're a government, like you know, is there like a new generation of regulation coming in that's going to kind of like, kind of um, like, is it acceptable for you know um, a large institution, like systemically important institution, like Barclays, et cetera, is dependent on this provider and actually kind of potentially impacted its services? Well. Actually, you know, what does the Bank of England think about that, you know, because they they regulate this type of space?
0: Well, you've got like DORA, the Digital Operational Resilience Act that just came out in 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 Europe for consultation. Ah, Okay. which which actually focuses exactly on this. I mean, it's broader. It sort of follows in the footpath of uh, or or the footsteps, sorry, of of the operational resilience discussion papers and white papers that that the uh, PRA and the, the FCA and the Bank of England have put out and the U.S. regulators have put out as well. But it starts to focus a lot more on technology third-party providers, mm-hmm. and then that, that's interesting to and fourth parties, right? It's interesting to start seeing that there's an attempt to see how they can bring legislation and perhaps oversight into those those sectors. And and it, and you and I know this is probably going on a massive tangent, but on 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 technology companies because if you look at the likes of Amazon and Apple and and Google, they all have a payment solution, but none of them have a bank. Yes, and. And you have to think that a lot of the reason why they didn't want to do that is they didn't want the regulations that go with being a deposit taker in most countries. 100%, yeah. But if they're going to get oversight by the regulators anyway for being a third party technology company and and they treat the the legal entity the same way, regardless of the services that are provided, then it might actually kickstart a uh, an industry of creating these these challenger banks coming out of uh, technology companies, which again, a pretty tangential conversation, but i I'm, I'm really, you know, you know, if you're gonna have regulations anyway, you might as well go for all of them.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that at all, but that, that is a super interesting kind of like, um, impacts like the incentives of, you know, like the, yeah, what might happen.
0: Anyway, yeah. sorry, back to threats, <laughs> back to cyber threats. <laughs> yeah. so, so what about insider threat? Because I know that, um, I remember, our uh, ex-boss that we had, you know, he. I sat in a meeting, my first meeting with him, and he sort of drew this triangle of, of threats and going from the sort of individual, what I would, what I used to call sort of script kiddies that just yeah. sit in the bedroom and, and are hacking for fun, like Gary McKinnon, for example, I would put him in that category of someone who just wanted to desperately to find some evidence of aliens. And then you've got sort of insider threat, which is sort of disgruntled employees, I would say, on one side and one is probably uh, employees that are influenced by um nation states or, or or criminal gangs and then you get into the sort of pure criminal and then nation state which could be nation state sponsored or, or nation state themselves and yeah. and and you get sort of increasing uh complexity and impact potential impact as you go further down that pyramid yes so insider to me is is one that 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 is seems quite scary and worrying because you you get, how, how do you protect an organization from someone who's just annoyed? You know, I think the Sony, one of the Sony issues was disgruntled employees that they had a few years ago where people thought they were gonna be made redundant. I think and they just kind of deleted a whole bunch of stuff and caused some, and, and published a whole bunch of stuff. And that, you know, that to me is, um, uh, and I, I'll check that because I might be incorrect. But um, yeah, you know, that that is a scary thing as an as an organisation. Like I've got someone who I've employed to maintain the databases. Therefore, they have got privileged access to those databases. Therefore, they have access to the backups of those databases. So, if somebody really wanted to destroy our ability, our books and records of our company, they could blat production and and the backup at the same time, and and there's not much I can do about it. Yeah, um,
1: inside of threat was. Um it was really fascinating kind of like topic to be able to kind of like engage on. Cause you, you were dealing with all the way from kind of like what we'd almost call like accidental insider threat where it was like, actually I just, I, I'm going to send this file onto kind of like my Gmail account from my work account because it's like, I just want to work on my laptop yeah. all the way to kind of like, actually I being actively recruited by, you know, kind of like a crime gang and I'm going to do some work and kind of make sure that I'm creating mule accounts and, and all the rest of it.
0: This new crime gang, Cuddly Bear.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. um i found it i mean a, a lot of people are putting investment in user behavior analytics yeah I deal with this which was like a really fascinating technology type that was in many ways it was kind of like mirroring the same discussion that was happening in kind of like core cybersecurity discussions which is we can't deal with the volume of data we actually need to start using artificial intelligence to detect kind of like anomalies and patterns etc yeah. And obviously, there was a lot of investment coming in from a cybersecurity perspective, like EDRM tooling, et cetera, to, to kind of like do that and detect and response. But it was basically the same concepts of how you were actually trying to scale like an insider, insider threat detection as well. Mm. And you ended up with quite a lot of organizations, I think, invested in both technologies. And, and then actually, as an organization, trying to actually like operationally run them, types of technologies and the skills and data that you need to be able to run those are incredibly complex.
0: Um, but it also feels like there's a place for managers there as well, coming back to the human behavior, like actual, rather than using AI and, and algorithms to try and uh, uh, spot blips and anomalies in human behavior, actually using our eyes and ears in how our, our colleagues and our staff are feeling.
1: Yes, 100%. Um, yeah.
0: There may be some very obvious indicators that somebody is um, feeling exactly right or if they're if they are you know like their houses be repossessed and they're getting divorced and whatever there may be some indicators that they could be suffering from financial issues that may make them more susceptible to um bribes basically and and coercion from criminal activity so there are things like that 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 we can use as well right so it comes back to human behavior and and you know you've got humans that need to be trained to not click on stuff you've got people that need to make sure they're keeping an eye on their on their employees and their colleagues um
1: yeah and it's it's a good point about do you as security professionals just increasingly when you look at security risks do you just automatically go to a technical solution when actually there's a there's a whole layer of kind of like other things that you should be doing as an organization um to kind of like maintain like resilience and maintain kind of like integrity from these types of threats it's like you said who knows the employees best than than the organization itself
0: right and, and actually i was having a chat with um with richard bell who's another friend of mine and we were doing a conversation a follow-up to a location independent working blog post that i did and uh that will that video will go up soon as well uh, or may already be up uh, depending on when i get around to doing editing all this stuff but it, he, he came up with a great point, which is that um, we we have a real challenge now with location independent working and I made this point in my blog as well that you don't see your people anymore yeah. you can't feel them that much and I don't mean that in a physical kind of grabbing them sense. I mean in the, the empathy connection tends to be lost because when you're in a room with someone, and I had this thing about smelling other humans, right? You, you need to, humans need to smell other humans, right? It's a kind of a, yeah. a, a community thing, like as a species, we like that sort of stuff. But, you know, when you're in the same room with someone, you can f- sense that they're stressed, sense that they're upset, sense that they're happy. You can, you can actually pick up on that without people bawling their eyes out or, or cackling or whatever it may be, but you lose that through this. Right. And, and you you then if you've got people that are starting to disengage on team meetings by switching the cameras off or not turning up. Yeah, those could be indicators in their own right that there's something you need to yeah. do. About it. But if you're in charge of a team of 100 people and two screens are off, you're probably going to miss it. And so there are some more complexities with location independent working. Some of it will become easier post COVID because a lot of background stress that people are suffering at the moment, all these lockdowns. But, uh, but it becomes more challenging as we, as we move to that. But, but I do think, to your, to your point, right, there's, there's always two sides to a solution in, 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 in resilience generally, but I think particularly in cyber, um, for insider, right, there's the, what, what does the manager think about this person or colleagues think about this person? Are they worried about them? Are, they, are there any behavioral indicators that they've seen just by working with them day in and day out? And what does technology tell us yes. to correlate that? Or vice versa, right? So there could be a correlation between what UBA is spitting out and what the uh, what the manager is seeing as well. So you could, you know, we I think we have to sort of correlate between observations by humans and observations by technology to get a richer view.
1: Yeah, and uh, what you said about location, like location independent working. Hugely challenging, I can imagine, for for people doing this because it's like, like you said, it's just the infrastructure setups as well are um um much more difficult to be able to kind of like monitor effectively. Like you said, you know, how do you how can you really know if somebody's working remotely for moms, if somebody's taking kind of like screenshots on their phone? Yeah. You know, um, you know, and kind of like as opposed to if they're sat in an office it's quite obvious if somebody's taking you know kind of
0: in some cases uh, they would be allowed to take their phone into that room if depending on what role they're doing so yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting isn't it
1: and we talked about this just before we like before we came on which is a lot of people are, are in situations where they're you know in shared spaces and they're in shared houses and you know you've got lots of kind of people probably you know um in, in not particularly optimal working from home conditions as well right you know so very difficult for an enterprise to put control space around that
0: because we can't, we can't, we can't do background checks on everyone's housemates, and we <laughs> can't put uh, te- you know technology on everyone's housemates' computers because they don't belong to us. And other companies will have that <laughs> hopefully installed on there or, or their their personal devices. So there's a kind of, and I think that's where you know we get the sort of pragmatism around the balance of risks on these discussions because, yeah. uh, but but it is it is a worry, right? And it's something which so far. Um, through lockdown, nothing is spat out, but I'm sure at some point there'll be some issues related to this and, and we'll, we'll have to work through them in, in various companies. Um, so the,
1: the biggest thing I think is, is what you said, which is um, the psychological impact of working from home for such a protracted period of time, how like it's very easy for employees to start disengaging from their employer. Yeah. You know, and that, I think that is a big risk that's kind of like building up, which is is, not only for performance and kind of productivity issues, but like, yeah, it's a security issue. It's very, very easy to start disengaging from an employee that you've not actually seen for an employer that you've not seen for 12 months. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. Like, I, got- I, there's a lot that we're going to have to codify in the way that we operate in this new normal. Yes. Uh, which is ironic because in some cases we're we're sort of putting people into an environment that they should feel more comfortable in because they're they're near... Their loved ones but in many cases they are by themselves and that sort of compounds the problem so there's a lot lot that we'll learn and as Richard when I was chatting to him was, was saying we are slightly overwhelmed at the moment because we've got the lockdown and COVID and other stresses so people are at home and they're worried about whether they're going to get ill or they're worried about their friends and family about whether they're going to get ill and seriously ill and uh, they're worried about when there's light at the end of a tunnel. They're worried about whether they're going to have a job at the end of it. They're worried about whether the government payouts are going to stop. There's a lot of background worry at the moment um, that is sort of distracting people from thinking about, do I actually like working from home? Because you've sort of been told you must by, by the government. And uh, at some point, will the government will say, you know, we're out of this. You've, you've, there's been enough vaccinations so you can go back to normal. And that's when some of the other worries will start to come out and some of the mental health issues will probably start to become a bit more apparent, but uh, that's a whole other topic of conversation.
1: Very much so, yeah. But like you said, I think there'll be companies that will be putting an awful lot of investment in in almost like what you call like the ethics of working from home. And, you know, like the, you know, I'm speaking to some large consultancies and they're definitely in this space, which is like a lot of their clients are saying, what are the things that we should be helping our employees do, like, do you enforce well, actually, we only want employees working eight hours on screen, which means that we're going to shut the screen down or kind of like give warnings, etc. You know, how can you actually build this in practice? Yeah. Um, I think people are just working more, um, you know, and the, the blurred lines between you know uh, work and home and all the rest of it. It's I mean, not a cyber, cybersecurity kind of like issue. No, say. it's
0: not. It's uh, well, I mean, it, it is in a sense that people are burning themselves out. Yes. Yeah. Right, and so they may be, they may be more more likely to make a mistake or. And that might, mistake might be a, a fat finger error, or it could be that the mistake may be that they find themselves uh, influenced by someone or some or, or, or some email or whatever it may be. So it's, it, it it does have a, an implication. I, I think, yeah, particularly where people don't have spaces that they can lock themselves away. And, you know, I'm lucky I've got a space that is not used for anything except me, which is clear by the amount of detritus in here of my life um, that I'm not allowed to have in any other part of the house because it's... Um, um yeah kids don't like it and uh uh but i i think that um yeah again that is another conversation but it's something which will continue to burn through over the over the coming months and probably years as we find out as we settle down into how that's going to work so when i talk about resilience or think about resilience i have the sort of two sides to resilience and and i do this this talk before some people have heard me say that business continuity is dead long live resilience and and what i mean by that is that resilience, um, business, well, business continuity and disaster recovery in a sort of technology view of the world was really looking at the least likely most highest impact scenarios and those that were in need of recovery of some sort. So it's basically something bad has happened. Now I need to recover from it. Let's think about all the bad things that could happen that would have a big impact that need a large heavy lift recovery and write that all down and make sure that we're ready for it. Make sure we've got crisis protocols wrapped around it and make sure we've tested it and exercise it and everyone knows their roles etc yeah uh, and then the other side of it when you think about resilience more broadly is stopping that thing happening in the first place so building that resistance to failure into the into the system i think you've touched on a number of elements of how we can build that resistance to a cyber a failure driven by a cyber a scenario or, or an event and we talked about people training we've talked a bit about we talked about intruder detection and and some of the the other detection software that can actually find things as there as there before maybe they've actually had a chance to get a foothold in the organization is there anything else you can think of that sits in that 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 protection or that proactive element prior to recovery that that we should be thinking about from a cyber resilience perspective
1: yeah so it might be slightly left field apart from like it's it's definitely my experience like when we're engaging like with the WEF with very senior leadership, which is there are lots of things you can do as an organization to kind of invest in kind of like protecting yourself as an organization, technology, people process, etc. But really the difference with cybersecurity is, is you have to start thinking about you as part of like a much wider ecosystem. And actually this, the concept of like, you, you need very, very robust public private partnerships and kind of like you as an organization should be really investing in kind of like your local and international cybersecurity ecosystem. And you also should be building relationships for your government affairs people about what are we doing as kind of like a public policy? Like how are we dealing with this as a public policy issue to try and reduce kind of the threat Um, and the risks to businesses operating, for example, in the UK. Um, And um, being actively part of that process and actively part of that ecosystem is something that we're hugely trying to encourage. Given, And a a good example of this is um, the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK, the active cyber defence programme that they've had, that's hugely dependent on uh, public-private partnerships, large institutions, financial services institutions that are kind of like part of that dialogue. And um, the work that say the UK has done with internet service providers, which is blocking large-scale malware campaigns like upstream from like a backbone perspective yeah. um, is part of how you're stopping the attack even getting towards you, right? Or, you know, are you investing in helping the national cybercrime unit investigate, you know, your attacks and you're giving them credible data? To help with attribution and investigation of the crime so i think when we when we think about what can you do to stop it there's, there's lots of stuff that you could do within your organization but i think the difference with cybersecurity is is you have to start investing in what we call like you you have to invest in the ecosystem yeah. which is you 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 have to invest in kind of like peer partnerships competitor partnerships and public policy partnerships yeah. um, tactically operationally and strategically and actually that's that's a big mindset shift for a lot of organizations that they're having to do that because it's different it's expensive it requires different types of skills as well um you know which you know so- it requires
0: potentially sort of pulling your trousers down in public uh, a little bit as well so you're admitting where perhaps something is something has happened to your organization and you're telling other organizations about the threat about the ttp so you end up that they're not so they don't impact that organization or any other um, parts of critical national infrastructure, whatever it may be that you're trying to help by sharing that information. You know, It's it's important to, to kind of culturally say it's okay to admit failure. We're not going to publish this to the world, but we're just going to share it amongst these um, these safe groups to ensure that that protection can be put there at a national level.
1: Yeah, and it's um, for, for, for senior leadership, providing your teams with kind of like the legal clarity, the processes, and the governance of doing that effectively
0: yeah.
1: um, is a significant investment. I think for them to do, because, like you said, it's a big risk. I think for a lot of organisations, culturally, to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in organisations we've worked with, we've we've really benefited from a collaboration between other financial services companies to to better combat some of the threat actors that are, that have come after financial services. To the point where you know we we may have helped with the response for another organization yes and that has helped us and other financial services company be protected against that threat or that attack if it was to happen and in many cases it has they have happened but we haven't been hit because in financial services in the uk particularly i mean everywhere frankly but you know there is no winner there's no prize for being yes. the best at cyber security because if you know, I'm naming names, but let's say if, if Barclays was to suffer an outage and HSBC still need to send payments to us, right? We still need to send payments to HSBC. We still need to clear uh, payroll for people that may bank with Lloyds or TSB or Santander or whoever it may be, right? So there's no winner, but there is a, a sector-wide winner as well. It's
1: like, um, it's about providing
0: integrity in the the entire system. So I just right? have to say... Thank you to the delivery drivers so they wouldn't just stand there and stare at me from the window. <laughs> well, uh,
1: what, what's been interesting like in this role though is um, I think we were incredibly lucky actually in US and European uh, financial services that there actually was that type of ecosystem, yes there was challenges but actually I think there was a lot of maturity between those organizations from other threats and risks. And there's like a lot of governance that's emerged over a, a long time for dealing with different threats and risk types. But when you start going into different countries and different sectors, some of that underpinning architecture just doesn't exist, you know, like, um, and also some of the larger, you know, the, where we you know, used to work, they, they had the resources to do it.
0: Yeah, we, do, we recognize yeah. the importance of it invested in it. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on to recovery. So we've talked about being resistant to failure, and I think there's a lot of takeaways there as well. But what if it happens? What if you do suffer a ransomware attack or or some other um, data breach or something that's that's been that some cyber attack in the nebulous sense or a Denial of Service attack, whatever it is, right? What then? How do you how do you recover from it? How do you make sure you're better than uh, every time you're better than you were last time?
1: Yeah. So. Um... In many ways, like it's kind of like um, you've touched on this yourself, which is how much of this are you exercising, you know, like within your uh, how much of this are you exercising? How much of this do you have like kind of like embedded in the kind of like DNA of the organization, depending on the severity of the incident? I think obviously when you when you work at a SOC and you work at, you know, like you're dealing with incidents all the time and you're getting better and sharper, et cetera, and you're improving kind of like improving your operational processes. Um the difficulty was was the things that you know you weren't expecting and that you hadn 't exercised for and you didn't have capability for and I think a lot of those resilience practices that you 've talked about you know exercising crisis management et cetera were 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 very important to that um and what i've I think there's a difference between the kind of operational security and technology teams as opposed to kind of the senior management we We deal a lot with chief communication officers here. And um, basically, the, the kind of like the consensus is, is cybersecurity is the number one issue that they as an organization now and in the future has to deal with for like major crisis management. And obviously, that's which basically means it's the most likely thing that they have to communicate to their employees and their customers about what they're dealing with. And there's some great examples of how it's not done very well. Um, you know, some uh, not naming and shaming, but I remember Talk Talk like back in 2014 was kind of like a maybe not how to do it, but organize. Um, so th- that's a difference yeah, about.
0: that. Yeah, to be fair to um, to the CEO at the time that was communicating, that was probably the first time that uh, we had had that scale of cyber attack that was so publicly, uh, well, it was so public, right? And yeah. had to have a CEO of a company stand up and and explain what had happened. And so they, she was being led by... An awful lot of uh guidance whether it's from the police or from her internal security or or comms and legal etc and had like all these tension to try and uh communicate something credible that that meant something to the customers yes and it's not not any yeah i wouldn't want to be in that in 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 her shoes when she was talking and i think that you know to be in a good case study to for others to learn about how to deal with it too. And I'm sure you're about to talk about that just now, but you know, it's good case study to think about how, how to do things a little bit better.
1: Yeah, and uh, you've definitely seen improvements, right? About, you know, communications about how to do it well. Um,
0: I think one of the things that that we we did a lot of these exercises with journalists as well, and uh, try to get them to, to help us to communicate effectively to our to our uh, customers if something was to happen and 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 one of the key points that I took away from that was it's it's a crime and you said it before this is a crime and so we have been a victim of a crime and you are therefore part of that 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 crime has been affected by that crime that's been perpetuated against us and you as customers and but, you know, we yes. care about you. Therefore, we are going to make it better, as best yeah. as we can, and we'll look after you. And I think that that sort of clarity of message that the journalists are saying, just try and be very clear. Don't don't bamboozle with techno jargon and ifs yeah. and buts and maybes and well, just be very clear. We suffered a crime. You've been caught up in it. We're going to make it better.
1: Yeah, and... Um... It's, a, it's. A, I think that's like a major thing for maybe like the cyber teams why they need kind of like good oversight and good like processes around them because we often do get sucked into the tech and actually not, basically no I don't think many people are particularly interested in the tech when you're doing that type of kind of like you know recovery which is like you do not need to tell them what kind of like encryption methodology that you had for what database and the rest of it you know it's like it's
0: vulnerability may have been involved in blah 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 yeah Nobody cares. Well, they don't care. Yeah. But you do need to tell them that here is the data that's been put at risk. It's yeah. your password. Therefore, your action should be change your password. It's your date of birth and your and your postal address. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we are not suggesting you change your date of birth or postal address, but we have reported it to the information commission officer, and you need to be aware of potential fraud. Um against you and here's some training of how to deal with fraud yeah and it's things like that and but don't worry your money's safe as long as you follow these steps and we're we're underwriting this and yeah and
1: actually um we forget like how quickly all this happened you know i don't know where top top was what 2014 i mean Uh, you know six years ago you know and actually you know know, it's not long at all right you know most organizations about to go through this type of like transformation in like 18 months 24 months etc and
0: 2015 was talk talk there we go yeah
1: I mean it's not long at all
0: right yeah the end of 2015 not long at all and and we've learned a lot you know as as we've had more data breaches you know Equifax I think again taught us as an industry a lot about um, the risk and the impact and how to deal with things BA uh, I think did a did a pretty decent job in putting some Adds up, and and being very clear about the the impact. Now, seriously, they they took it. So I think there's been incremental improvements every time there's been an issue. Uh, unfortunately, TalkTalk Talk happened to be one of the first big ones to go. Uh, you know, there were there were other ones before, like Experian and a few others that happened before, but they probably didn't have the headline grabbing um, ability that TalkTalk Talk did. Yeah, and like you
1: said, it's not pointing the finger at.
0: No. Any organization
1: at the time, because it could have been anyone right you know yeah. in many ways. Uh,
0: yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point, right? This could have happened to anyone. Yes, and it's happened to more people since, so it's, it will happen again. So it could happen to your company from people watching it, it could happen to you personally.
1: I think um actually I probably need to check I think like Facebook like dealt with something very, very similar. I think it was probably less than less, uh, it was last year where it was you know kind of Facebook has detected an incident, you know cybercrime is one of the kind of like greatest threats that we have to deal with collectively. We are doing everything that we can, to, and it, you know that's a major and I, and I actually remember at the time thinking just how things had moved on and like how kind of like good it was actually.
0: Yeah, it was a password breach. They had password in clear text off, and it was, they've discovered it on a, um, I'm just looking up. the have to
1: look it up, yeah, the comms they put out around it.
0: Yeah, it was uh, 267 million, no, it was 100,000 compromised password on a, uh, uh, on a, on a pastebin dump in 2020. But, you know, it's, it's, And and unfortunately, I think the reality as an individual on planet Earth at the moment, an individual on planet Earth with a smartphone or, you know, any sort of device that's connected to the Internet, most of our PII data has already been stolen. Right. Our date of birth, our email address, our old passwords. Hopefully they're old passwords. People watching, change your password. And... uh, almost certainly some of our credit card numbers are out there, our, our challenge questions, some of the answers are out there and postal addresses, they're already out there. If you, if you have uh, ever bought anything online, if you've used social media, if you've, you, you probably already have a large proportion of your data out there. And so certainly if you, the password managers now, uh, even my VPN client, it tells me that I've got exposed credentials in the dark web so we know that, and that's helpful because it tells you like, I'm gonna go and change my password. And if you go to, yeah, you can find out a bit more about where you've been, where, the, where your email may be there and what other data has been breached. But it's, as an individual, most of us have got, most, most of our private data is already out there somewhere. So there's not an awful lot that we can protect apart from our most recent passwords, and our most recent bank details and our most recent challenge information. Um, yeah, which is a sobering thought.
1: Yeah, and um, I think the interesting thing is, is like, I don't think we're particularly good still at articulating, particularly even to government, which is like, where does this, and I agree about the kind of large scale kind of like PII that's out there, like, where does the risk manifest itself? And actually, you know, a lot of the risk manifests itself in the financial institutions as kind of like secondary, tertiary fra- you know, fraud, you know, it, it was social, of engineering fraud it was kind of like stuff that kind of fueled all this other kind of crime but it was very difficult to say well this came from this data breach that was kind of like in this gym company and and actually the banks did absorb I think a lot of the kind of like the impact of of financially motivated cyber crime but it it was it was very difficult to be able to piece together how this kind of like much larger ecosystem of of data breaches was fueling kind of um um all these other different types of crime, et cetera. um, Yeah. Which is why I think it is a public policy issue as well, which is, um, in in many ways, it was like the, it it made the the banks and financial services and payment providers were having to kind of like invest an awful lot in kind of like fraud detection technology that actually was coming from all these kind of like, you know, weak passwords and kind of like, et cetera, et cetera.
0: um, And that gives, yeah, so at the individual level, it gives you... uh, an increased likelihood of fraud based on how much data mike butler has out in the public domain that could be leveraged to um to to make fraudulent transactions on my account or gain access to my my account or take over my netflix account whatever it may be you know stuff that's really important to me um uh, particularly in lockdown and unemployment but you know it's it's uh, it's stuff like that but i think if you from a, coming back to the sort of corporate things we were talking about communication and I, I, you know, we've done a lot of exercises that have told us what companies need to get better at, and it pretty much is communication, because yeah. we've got good people in most companies now in the technology side that will go and solve whatever problem that is and, and try and bring the systems online again. And we've got good people in cybersecurity that are going to be there to help um, look at mitigating controls and measures to like block the baddies or, or whatever it may be. Um, We've got commerce people inside. We've got legal people. All the people, all the building blocks are there mm-hmm. for us to be able to create an appropriate response. Um, but publicly, and to, and to our employees and our colleagues, we need to be very clear about what's happened and what happens next. Yes. And that's pretty much the, the main learning of everything we have. And also, don't interfere with your recovery teams, right? They're, they're the experts. Don't try and be because you just happen to be the most senior person in, on, on a call, yes. not the expert in the thing. So just let, the, let everyone do their job, but make sure you've gotten the air cover when they need to escalate and make sure you're there to be able to communicate appropriately to all the interested parties, which are generally in our sector, regulators, customers, uh, the information controller and uh, shareholders and boards, et cetera. And so when you've got all that in place and you get credible com- comms out, then that allows you to make sure that you're fixing the problem, restoring service, and at the same time, you're communicating regularly to customers so they understand what's happening and their expectations are set um, as well. Absolutely. Is there anything else you think that we should be passing on to, to, to the watchers of this on how you can better prepare yourself to re- recover from, from these types of events? You know, Cyber insurance is something which gets put out there quite a bit. I know my school has got that in place. If they need to, if they get bricked devices, they can. They've got insurance they can claim against.
1: Yeah, so um, kind of like risk transfer and liability transfer, and like the insurance market is like definitely a big topic. Mm. I think there's, I think there's still a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of cyber insurance, etc. And that is definitely a maturing industry.
0: Yeah,
1: like what what constitutes effective cover, what is in the cover, what do you is kind of like the what's the responsibilities that you have as a party to be able to do that I'd, um
0: and this is like pre-agreed um commercial rates with consulting firms to come in and help the clear up so you're not coming to them after the event you, you've agreed it up front so you've got a kind of a, a, a more palatable bill
1: well i think um I think you said, we talked about this where it's actually the, the kind of cyber threats and cyber attacks that you're gonna um, suffer from as an organization you can basically model most of them and and a lot of organizations have red teams and red teaming services etc mm-hmm. so actually kind of like being quite clear about well this type of ransomware attack that's going to like impact this type of system etc what is our response to it actually a lot of that's a lot of the pre-work can already be done right and um Yes, the malware is going to change. Some of the technical TTPs are going to change, but broadly, we've actually got the attack categories and the impact and how it's going to manifest itself in the business is actually already well known. So, actually, you can you can kind of like build like resilience plans. I think quite effectively for those types of scenarios. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, no, it's the big one where it's been the big question a lot of organizations have dealt with is, you know, do we pay or not pay? You
0: know. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, each organization needs to take their own legal advice as to what they're going to do and look at their jurisdictional restrictions and their ability to do that as well. Completely. Yeah. Uh, so what about these vaults? There's all these like cyber vaults that are in there. I know you've got um, uh, a lot of the tech companies now are starting to sell solutions to provide a, an air-gapped or you know, virtual air-gapped vault solution for like almost a doomsday vault if, if the worst was to happen to their production platforms that they got something there that had the data out. You've got Sheltered Harbor in the US which provides a, a sort of end of day view of transactions for uh, financial services companies as well so that you can you can almost operate. Um, you've got a balanced view at least for, for clients, customers and assets that allows you to um, sort of restart the bank uh, with the appropriate infrastructure i mean do you do you have any thoughts on that much experience with the vaults i don't have much kind of like operational
1: experience um, with that but i but i would say that um a lot of organizations given specifically the ransomware threat are looking at this type of solution and whether it's effective for their organization given that we think it's it's obviously kind of like the biggest threat um that's out there and increasingly you are having very very aggressive campaigns that are destructive in nature yeah. and are kind of like very adept at like finding backups and deleting backups etc and you've got a large compromise which means that you you are increasingly looking at these very very kind of uh, these solutions which are um i won't say doomsday but you know i but I, w- I would say that like, there's obviously a lot of sense for organizations to explore those kind of like technical solutions, given that the threat is manifesting itself in this way. And um, actually there's been a lot of successful um, campaigns and criminal campaigns that have been quite destructive for organizations. So it makes a lot of sense that people are, are looking at that. You're probably thinking though, if the, if those types of solutions are being actually operationalized, you, You've, you've, you've probably done quite, I won't say things wrong, but people have gone quite far down the line of like lots of, there's lots of things that you can do to stop people being able to attack you in yeah. that type of impact. So most of the ransomware campaigns that would like require that type of response are still delivered through mal spam and still delivered through kind of like, you know, malware that you could detect through your kind of ordinary email kind of like detection mechanisms, you know. So I would say that you know that makes a lot of sense given where the fret landscape is going. I would say though that you know that there's an awful. I mean, we used to do the kill chain, right? You know, there's an awful lot of controls that you have to get to uh,
0: before you're in that in that space. You have lots of locks on your door before you go to the safe room. Yes, yeah, so I agree with that. Yeah, house uh, that you can you can focus on first. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I think to your point, there's a there are specific scenarios where it could help, and there are other scenarios sort of creeping death scenarios where it's probably less helpful um, but your other detection and controls are, are, are quite useful there uh, I also do think that most companies need to make sure they don't forget how to do things manually yes so when you've got a reliance on STP payments process straight through processing payments uh, that's great because you can do high volume and uh, you're only looking at breaks at that point but at the same time don't forget how to do it manually using your own your own kind of interfaces into central banks, into payment providers. Because at some point, if they're, even if they're down just because of technology issues, you want to make sure you can do some of your end-of-day pay, end payments, meet some of your obligations, that you know what your balances are, et cetera. And we've explored that in a number of scenarios as well. And, and it's not just payments. Payments is just one big area of concern, I think. But there's a lot of things that make sure your manual processes are well understood to be able to deal with uh, the lack of the ability to transact uh, through the systems. Um, I, I think we've covered quite a lot in our in our time, yeah. Will, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Is there any any sort of final thoughts from you before we, we wrap?
1: Yeah, I, you know, like thanks, Mike, for kind of inviting me. I've enjoyed the enjoyed the conversation. I think the the main thing uh, I would say about cybersecurity. Um, for businesses is this is like going to be the dominant risk that you're going to be dealing with, you know, for, for the short, medium, and long-term. Increasingly, as most organizations invest and become technology businesses, and, you know, they're increasingly dependent on complex technical processes for their value offering. Cybersecurity is like absolutely integral to kind of like maintaining um, resilience, not only kind of like in the classic sense, but resilience in the sense of the the survivability of their business, you know, which is, if you're increasingly becoming a technology company, you've got to make sure that cybersecurity is a, a kind of integral part of, of, of your strategy as well as a business. Definitely.
0: Thank you very much, Will. Uh, good luck uh, with 2021. I hope it brings you uh, lots more uh, challenge and excitement uh, to add to your new baby.
1: Yes. And,
0: uh, and hopefully, we'll speak soon. Thanks very much, Mike.